0: Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to a beautiful podcast. I'm your host, Spring developer advocate Josh Long, and this show is all about the real heroes behind Spring and its ecosystem. Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to another installment of a beautiful podcast. How are you this fine afternoon? It's Thursday, but only just. My brain does not register that it is Thursday. It feels very weird that it is Thursday uh, because here in the States, we had Labor Day over the weekend, uh, and so my team, at least, we had four days off, so um, uh, the usual Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday and Tuesday. Now, normally, if you get the day off, for the, if you get some concession in terms of time off for the holiday, it usually comes on a Monday. But, um, you know, we also got Tuesday, uh, in my team at least. So that was really nice. Um, really, you know, great to have those four days. But, uh, you know, we took a trip to Carmel. That was beautiful. Uh, but. <laughs> just sort of my luck, it came at the tail end of basically two weeks of uh, frantic excitement around uh, VMware Explorer, lots of people coming and going, lots of, uh, you know, handshaking and meeting and all that kind of stuff. And wouldn't you know it, I got a cold um, uh, at the end of it. So I spent most of the weekend miserable, even the drive to Carmel, lovely and paradise-like though it is, uh, was, you know, uh, punctuated by taking uh, cold medicine and blowing my nose and doing all this kind of stuff so uh yeah it's uh it's been fun but now it's thursday but it only feels like tuesday right like tomorrow it's basically all we're the last day of the week right i'm and i've got just i have no meetings tomorrow so for me my my brain is i've got code to do you know but no nothing in person so i'm mentally checked out you know my <laughs> the energy um for the week has come and gone already which is weird uh and it's actually okay. I'm still just recovering from the cold. I, I spent most of the uh, weekend, be, besides that brief uh, 36 hours in Carmel with the family, I spent most of that, you know, working, right? and um, uh, Because I what else am I going to do? It's not like I can go out and indulge, you know? Um, and uh, so this week, I'm just kind of burnt out, if I'm honest. I <laughs> Friday can't come fast enough. Um, and, you know, to make matters worse, getting, getting old is not for the... Uh, not for the faint of heart, they say, um, I, I slept wrong. My neck hurts. It's just be ah, oh, what a week. It's not actually a bad week. I shouldn't complain. Uh, it's also been hot here in San Francisco. Well, when I say hot, I'm using air quotes here. So California and other states in the southern uh, region of the, the, the U.S. are um, in the southwest, basically. Not just the southern, but the southwest region of the U.S. We're, we're, we're in a heat dome uh, basically there's high pressure fronts you know c- caging in if you will this heat and the heat can't blow away and dissipate so it's it's getting hotter and hotter and it's hitting the ground and then that's sending it back up into the air which is bouncing off the high pressure zone at the top and off the, to the sides and it's sending it back to the ground further heating and energizing the, the ground and you know it's a vicious cycle that's making the heat hotter and hotter day by day and um, you know it just seems to be unrelenting here in San Francisco we have a bit of a microclimate. Uh, and so you can drive 10, 15 miles in any direction uh, and, uh, and you'll be in a warmer area. But in San Francisco, for whatever reason, we just tend to be 10 degrees cooler uh, than neighboring uh, locales, you know. Um, so here it's been up to, and I'm, I'm using air quotes here, um, 80 Fahrenheit, right? 80 Fahrenheit is uh, 26.6 Celsius. So that's not very hot, right? I mean, for San Francisco, that's uh, extraordinarily hot, but for most um, for most other areas, that's that's a cool summer day, right? That's no big deal. Uh, I'm from Los Angeles. It used to routinely get up in the hundreds. You know, uh, 100 Fahrenheit is what is that? 42 something like that, right? Uh, fun. It is 37. All right, so above 100 is 37 Celsius, um, and so that's that's much more problematic that's much more formidable and that's happening not too far from here indeed on the drive from carmel in california to san francisco on the way home um we passed by a city called gilroy and there it was uh 100 and what was it 10 or 11 Hundred eleven fahrenheit and celsius that's 43.8 uh celsius so that's very very warm dangerously warm right um uh, to the point where you have you worry about your car being able to sub- <laughs> survive long enough to get you out of there Um we drive an electric uh, car and so you know i always wonder about those batteries in, in super high heat and super cold it's a known thing that the batteries dissipate they uh, are less efficient and, uh, during uh, particularly cold weather i just didn't know about overheating and what that looks like and the impact on the air conditioning and all that Anyway, I shouldn't complain all that much. This is the first bit of heat we've had in San Francisco um, all summer. Basically, like, we don't we don't get summer heat here. It's because there is a, a mountain range and the ocean surrounding us. We're in a peninsula. Because we're in this very weird little geogra- ge- uh, geography, um, uh, it's kind of like a high pressure front, right? We have this thing that traps the cold in, and uh, and worse, the cold stays here, but it it hits the ocean and it creates fog. And so you get this fog that rolls over the mountains and floods into the valley, uh, into the peninsula. Uh, and so, you know, my, the part of the city that I live in sometimes gets just covered in fog and it's more pronounced, more visible, more, uh, present in the summer, because of course there's more of a, of of a delta between the water temperature and the ambient air, um, the heated air, heated by the sun's energy. Right. So, uh, it's, it's just crazy. You know, there's a, an apocryphal quote, right. But, uh, i'm not sure if it's real but mark twain is is supposed to have said the coldest winter i've ever spent was a summer in san francisco and you know i'm often reminded of that you know most this summer we've had these incredibly eerie photos of fog rolling in over the bridge uh you know descending into the city and covering these giant skyscrapers and cloud uh, in the evenings and in particular with all the lights dancing around the uh, the fog and, and the clouds and all that it is eerie and beautiful and spectacular but it's also summer it's cold and windy and foggy and it's it's cold you know it's it's summer 20 miles away people are blue skies you know 100 degree weather etc so such a it's a weird little corner of the planet that's for sure um, so 80 degrees is you know not bad for most places but for here it can be really really bad uh, and the reason is because San Francisco is a very old city I mean for, as 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 you know, Europe or Asia goes—it's not very old at all. But here in the states, uh, it's one of the oldest, right? Obviously, the um, east East Coast cities, the original colonies—those are far older, right? Uh, you go to New York, for example—that's four hundred plus years old. Um, but San Francisco, as uh, you know, as we know it, um, actually even before we knew it, uh, as we know it, uh, is you know what, one hundred and seventy years, 18, 1849, some out of that—that's the Gold Rush, right? That that whole help, that helped precipitate the settlement uh, that. It would result in what is now San Francisco. So, even if you go that far back, that's still 170 something years. We're not talking about all that much time. Um, but uh, but as an old city, we, we tend to have um, a lot of housing without air conditioning and without the infrastructure to support air conditioning. And we don't normally need it, right? You just crack a window and it's fine. But uh, this time of year, they open up the libraries uh, so that elderly people can go in there and get air conditioning. You know, it's it's crazy. It's really sad too. You know, you you want you want these people to be okay, so the city pulls out the stops to accommodate them to help them. Uh, I'm lucky enough that uh, you know, since I'm blessed to work in software, uh, I can afford air conditioning in a in a newer building. You know, uh, but uh, it's not everybody. You know, and it's very weird. I I sometimes we forget how to run the air conditioning, uh, because we don't we never use it. You know, uh, yeah, it's just a weird. Weird week, I'm telling you, my schedule's all weird, the weather's all weird, my body's all weird, it's just, uh, you know, the only thing that's constant, I suppose, I I suppose through it all, the one thing that's constant is that there's an amazing, amazing community out there doing amazing things, and uh, that's kept me busy. All week, I've just been um, deep diving into the Spring Framework 6 and Spring Boot 3 AOT support, and it's really something, it's really, really something, it's coming along uh, very well right now we have um in spring framework six there's a new uh, built-in integration in the framework itself to help you build um aot right to build a a, an object graph that whose whose uh type dimensions and and all that uh ends up in config files so that you can run this code in a gravium native image and um and so there's now another yet yet another lifecycle phase in your Spring beans, right? You've got some code that runs uh, very early before the application context has been created, where you're, where you're dealing with the primordial ooze of the uh, the application context, the bean factory, and its various bean definitions. Um, you've got uh, you've got code that runs later. Um, as things are being initialized and then you've got code that runs even later still after the application and all its beans and all of its dependencies are wired together and fully formed uh, on application startup. Um, and there's like other interfaces and we, you probably know about those various lifecycle phases, the bean factory post processor, the bean post processor, um, et cetera. But well, now there's yet another phase an e- earlier still phase that gets evaluated, amazingly enough, at compile time. So even before the bean factory post processor, et cetera, Um, during the compilation of the code, during the actual compilation of the native image, there's some code that can live side-by-side with all your bean factory post-processors and bean post-processors and initializing beans and all that stuff. Uh, There's another set of uh, infrastructure code, another bit, another, you know, dimensions of the infrastructure code uh, that gets evaluated during compilation. And it's at this time where you get references to the bean definitions in the object graph and you can use that to then um, you know, uh, register the relevant information for proxies and aspect, you know, for, for um, you know, cglib proxies and JDK proxies and reflection and serialization and all that. Um, and so it's really interesting. You can actually, you know, ship in- integrations as a library um, that take care of compiling themselves into native images, right? You can write code that works well in a Spring environment as auto-configuration, um, but that at compile time, if on the class path, uh, contribute hints to the GrauVM configuration that then gets fed into the native image compiler, which then results in the native image that works correctly with all the dynamic aspects of your, of your auto configuration, right? And this can all be on the class path. So the user need not be any the wiser, right? You can uh, just have this thing on the, uh, this auto config on the class path. It'll automatically register the hints required to compile and run in a native image context. Um, and it's just a, it's just another dimension of your code. It's just really, really smart. So, you know, the the big part is getting that model to work foundationally, and it's 99% of the way there, I'd say. Uh, you can try it out now. Go to start.spring.io, get the 3.0 snapshots, and just check out what it means to write a runtime hint registrar or a bean factory initialization AOT processor or bean registration AOT processor. These types are your uh, hooks into... The, uh, the the gravium infrastructure, the OT infrastructure. Um, and you know the world's your oyster once you start doing that stuff. It's really, really uh, amazing, you know? Um, I'm really always, I'm very impressed with how good software can get by doing it well in the first place. That is to say, if you write your framework in such a way that it has a distinction between the meta model and the model, then you know it's not hard to then leverage that meta model to do other interesting things as we're doing here for the AOT stuff. Um, I like well engineered things, and it's it shows uh, in the work we're doing around AOT just how powerful Spring really is. I mean it crazy crazy powerful. Uh, the other you know kind of a bumpy segue, but you'll I I hope you'll forgive me. The other thing I really like, or the other really well architected thing, really de- well designed thing. That I've become a big fan of is HashiCorp Vault. Now, HashiCorp Vault does more than I know what to do with, right? It is, uh, it is, it is a security uh, expert's tool, right? It, it, it has it's configurable along the dimensions of what a security expert would expect, um, and because it's configurable along those dimensions, uh, you you, know, you have to have expertise there to. Really, truly understand what's happening there. Um, so I'm, I'm, I don't think I'll ever get to the point where I truly understand how to operate and administer a vault server uh, instance completely by myself. But from a developer's perspective, it couldn't be easier, right? There are so many amazing knobs and levers that you can manipulate to uh, to secure your application and your business logic. And and some of that stuff, you know, you'll have to learn some security concepts um, like password rotation and that and the like. But some of it is just it's just really easy to consume, right? And made more simple even uh, through the use of things like Spring Cloud for HashiCorp Vault uh, and uh, and more, right? These these integrations make it so that you can connect your Spring application to a Vault server as a config server kind of thing, as a backend or as a um, directly, you know, you can, or as a property source uh, replacement. So you can use it for the Spring Cloud config server as a backend for that, or you can use it as a, you know, directly as a property source in your application for going the Spring Cloud config server altogether. Um, you can use it, uh, you know, in just lots of different ways. And it in turn has integrations with lots of things. So you can use it to uh, originate the passwords that feed into things like Postgres or to your various SQL databases, right? So it can actually do transparent rotation of the uh, passwords and then notify your app, giving it a chance to rebind or reconfigure itself. It's just, Truly, truly genius uh, kind of code. And it's it's beautiful and it works. And the fact that it's end-to-end secure and you can have one holistic system where Vault is the secure source of truth for credentials uh, and it takes care of proactively tra- rotating passwords and so on, it's just it's just really amazing. Really, really fantastic software. And it's free, it's open source. You can use it, you can do amazing things with it. Um, I, I couldn't be more grateful, obviously. It's a amazing piece of code. And uh, I, I was, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for ways to learn more about it. So imagine my uh, delight when uh, HatchCorp's Corp's uh, Rosemary Wong, a developer advocate, um, uh, was able to join me for the, for the show. She is, uh, you know, she, when I grew up, I want to be half so smart as she is. She is uh, just, <laughs> she, she just knows all this cool stuff about both apps and ops. Um, and, uh, I just really, I just had a blast just learning from her, uh, in this podcast. I, there were a few points where, you know, my eyes were watering because some of the stuff we talk about is well beyond my pay grade, but, um, she, uh, as you, one of the, and this is why I was so glad she was on the show. She did a great job, uh, dumbing it down for me so I could, I could kind of follow, uh, and I, I hope you get something out of it. I know I did. I really, I feel like I, I feel like if she sent me, uh, um, a bill, uh, for the the time she spent <laughs> uh, making this stuff uh, approachable by mere mortals like myself, then I guess I would have to pay it. I would. It was. It was totally worth it. It was great. I. I you know. I got something out of it. So enjoy this episode. Enjoy. Have a great weekend, and uh, look forward to seeing you all next week. Also, by the way, before I forget, have you registered for Spring One? I just realized that Spring One is going to be in uh, San Francisco, my home, the one about which I just spoke the one with all the fog, it's going to be in San Francisco uh, in December this year. And this is the year of Spring Boot 3 and Spring Framework 6. You should be coming to Spring 1. This is going to be the first big in-person registration, uh, you know, thing, like in-person show, whatever, uh, since before the virus, right? Since 2019. Uh, so it's going to be a big one, not just because of the these see tide changes in the e- ecosystem the libraries the integrations but also because it's in person we're back um, so yeah uh, register now go get your uh, tickets uh and then come to san francisco and by the way if you're in the states uh there are omicron boosters now everywhere so if you are uh, worried about it being in a crowded space and a little you know it's good to be a little cautious uh obviously because it's you're never completely safe but you know, it's. I feel. I'm. Even I was a little bit worried about that. But now there's these boosters. I can't wait to get them. Um, uh, my family and I are going to go get them. And so, you know, <laughs> suddenly I'm. I'm much, much less concerned about the uh, the winter wave. So uh, yeah, uh, join us. Can't wait to see you. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um... uh podcast design i don't know if it's going to get recorded and we actually just had technical um difficulties owing yeah. to entropy i don't know i have no idea but we almost didn't make it that's good yeah i mean it's good that we fixed it right uh okay good so 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 we can get right into it tell the audience who you are would you mind like so i don't sure. put you Sure.
1: Hi, I'm Rosemary Wong. I'm a developer advocate at HashiCorp. I primarily cover Vault and Console, previously covered Terraform, and you know, used a lot of the other HashiCorp open source tools in various ways. So uh, I've been in uh, doing infrastructure and DevOps stuff, uh, whatever stuff that might be uh, for quite some time now. Um, and you know, been someone who enjoys learning a lot of different things. So I dabbled in a little bit of application development, security, uh, even, you know, I guess, to a certain degree, front end development, but I was terrible at it. So <laughs> I, I just like learning a lot of different things.
0: Wow, that's Yeah. Awesome. And you, you're also an author, right? You've got a, a book out there.
1: I do. I have a book called Infrastructure's Code Patterns and Practices. I realized that when we built infrastructure, we didn't really talk about common patterns or even the important practices that we needed to scale it across our teams And within our company, because there are things that we talk about, like continuous delivery uh, and even sometimes deployment of infrastructure that we avoid actively avoid because we're beholden to certain processes and um, certain structures for infrastructure changes. Right. So I wanted to really think about that critically and apply it from a software perspective,
0: like design patterns for infrastructure or something like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Heavily based on design patterns, although I promise it's probably not as dense as some of the descriptors for design patterns. I I did my best to try to read through design patterns many years ago, and I remember how dense it was. And I was like, okay, we got to make it a little bit more distilled and a little bit more tangible for how you apply it to an infrastructure use case.
0: I think as we move forward in time and languages become more fit to purpose, the patterns in that book become more what was the word you use? That you use dense, like because when I say when I think of dense, I think of stuff that is there's a lot of reading for very little value, right? And uh, and the reason there's less value in those patterns is because more languages just have them baked in, you know? They're not they're not worthy or uh, meritorious of a of a of some sort of codification of those concepts. They're already built into a language now. Um, but yeah, I agree. with you. And they even did. A, I think I saw or heard that there's going to be an update with. JavaScript, you know, like they're going to use a more modern language, which doesn't have some of the need for these patterns, you know. Wow, uh, that's going to be that. different. Yeah, I was needed that. Somebody was telling me, I think I was talking to uh, whatever, you know. There's uh, one of those books. I think it was that uh, design patterns. Googling, uh, I could be wrong, you know.
1: And yeah. of course, well, then, search
0: for if you search. It for doesn't JavaScript, surprise pattern, me. Oh, yeah, yeah, it doesn't
1: surprise me though, because I think when I first learned about design patterns to begin with, it confused me. I just sort of, uh, I think part of this was I was naive. I sort of wasn't really that well knowledge in the level of abstractions that I, I needed to put in my code in order for it to be maintainable in the first place oh, uh, or to even, yeah. So I think that trying to learn design patterns from that perspective, um, sort of needing to implement it myself almost was not probably not the right approach. I think now we're, we have so many great abstractions and nice ways that we don't have to think about this kind of thing. And it, right. it, all of these different things anymore, um, we just sort of intuit it uh, is really nice. <laughs> it makes it less, uh, less difficult to understand and to write really sustainable, uh, when I say sustainable, maybe not even the right word, but at least maintainable code.
0: Right, yeah, I mean, it- So maintainable code, I guess, going back to the infrastructure use case there, that's important, right? So what language did you use though to express those concepts in that book?
1: Oh, this was a complicated one. (laughs) So yes, so I started with a domain-specific language. For those who are not familiar with Infrastructure's code tools, a number of them start with domain-specific languages because a number... Yeah, like Terraform. So Terraform uses a domain specific language called HashiCorp configuration language. And part of this is because a lot of people prefer a very declarative interface. They don't really want to know how to code in the traditional sense. They need a way to express their intent. And this is a language by which they can express their intent. It didn't, it was fine. A lot of the systems administrators or engineers or DevOps engineers, cloud engineers, who initially took a look at the book, were like, oh yeah, we get this. Um, But it also kind of, um, it wasn't really speaking to the audience, a broader audience that needed a different level of abstraction. So for example, if you're maybe a developer who's getting into infrastructure, you wouldn't really want to use a domain specific language. And so there was a, yeah, so there was a lot of back and forth and there was huge, huge question around longevity because domain specific languages change syntax (laughs) uh, quite a bit. And you have to do a lot of explanation. And so after some, you know, workshopping and assessing uh, with certain reviewers and other, you know, reader feedback, uh, I settled on Python. So this is where it gets a little complicated. It is Python wrapped around Terraform domain-specific language in JSON.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Wait, is that Python 3 at least?
1: Yes, it is in Python 3.
0: Okay, well then you have my approval. Uh, well, that's, I mean, Python's everywhere. It's the go-to language for you know infrastructure. And it, that's not a new thing either, right? Like I remember 20 years ago, Red Hat, you know, the user space stuff, all that stuff in Red Hat, you know they, what you'd get in the CDs or whatever back in the '90s was Python. You know, um,
1: yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, it it happened to be. You know, I was asking people like, "What would you want? Do you want a different language?" And most of them, they're using Python either for data, per, you know, data processing purposes, or at least you know, at least the 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 newer modern data processing purposes. Right. Um, some are using it for security. Others are just familiar with it because they've scripted with it in infrastructure. And at least for a developer coming in, you know, it's not that Python in itself is is accessible enough that someone can pick it up um, if they have a previous programming language background. So in terms of the common denominator, I was like, all right, all right, here we go. So, yeah, it was a little painful. I wish I sort of wrote everything uh, in, in Terraform specifically, but I didn't really want to get into the I, so... The way I think about it, it's a declarative sandwich, right? You've got an imperative programming language like Python on top of Terraform, which is a declarative uh, interface on top of the imperative uh, programming language that handles all the behaviors directly to the infrastructure API. And with all of those abstractions in place, I was like, I'd rather not have to add another one, but here we are. Um, if it means that it's the right level for people to understand the pattern.
0: right? Oh, that makes sense. That's a good idea. I, I I I've got the book. I just haven't had a minute to read it. I will. I uh, I'm always looking to expand my Python skills. Um. What? So right now you mentioned you mentioned Terraform. Terraform is the tool of the last ten years or last five six years, whatever. It's like the thing I see as like the baseline standard. Right. Even Microsoft they, when you they have a Terraform script for their Azure Spring Apps. I mean, it's just it's one of these tools where I don't know how we did it before it existed, you know. Uh, and uh, I, uh, it's easy enough to say for all new things you maybe use Kubernetes, but that's the old, you know, old for some definition of old. That's not going away, right? The, 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 the entrenched infrastructure that has this diverging APIs, that's going to be with us for for forever, you know. So Terraform is great, right? I, that's one of those things where I just don't know how we did it before. What was your on-ramp to that? Like why, why that instead of whatever the alternative was? Again, I don't even know what we did before. Just pop, pop it, chef. It doesn't even, I can't even imagine.
1: Yeah. So what we did before was a complicated mix of a few things. I guess it starts with, I think it's really indicative, and you pointed out like the past 10 years, right? Uh, it's really indicative of my journey. I started working on cloud infrastructure, private cloud infrastructure, and I would click things in the end in- user interface using my mouse um, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and I guess to chart the progression of what we did before, which was pretty entertaining was uh, I used to basically take all of these server names and then copy paste them manually into a user interface, which was terrible. Uh, no one, you know, no one wants to spend their weekend doing that and I had to do it during a weekend change window. So it was, it made it even you know more, uh, unpalatable in many ways. And so then uh, shortly after that, I decided there has to be some way for me to automate this. And at the time, you know infrastructure apis were becoming more and more popular. they were becoming more uh, important that um vendors offered them. so, at yeah. that point, I started looking into infrastructure APIs and writing scripts to automate against those infrastructure APIs. They right. could be bash scripts, they could be Python. I mean, as a systems person, you know, you're you're trying Ruby. to get something as yeah, Ruby, you're trying to get something super lightweight, right? Um, yeah. and then you get these the advent of these configuration management tools like Puppet, you know, Chef, to a certain degree, Ansible. Part of this was that people needed to configure servers more reliably and you know, more consistently. So, you know, there are a lot of these tools that use programming languages to wrap around some accessible infrastructure interface, and that's where you get the configuration management tools. I was introduced to Terraform because I wanted a way not to configure servers, but to configure network switches. And-
0: Network switches? Yeah. (laughs) Physical network switches?
1: yes That's a physical, physical thing you can
0: do with
1: yes and so i wanted to do that somehow with terraform and at the time it wasn't being offered for terraform at least terraform didn't have uh, a, an integration or a provider for network switches so i had to kind of give up that but on the other hand i could automate a lot in you know vsphere at the time it was an early iteration of i think the vsphere terraform provider so oh. i was using that to basically create and group virtual machines, you know, make sure that I had everything from an administrative standpoint set up and I could do it idempotently, meaning I could reissue the command, not overwrite anything, which was the problem with a lot of my scripts, right? I couldn't necessarily rerun them safely. So that was how I got started with Terraform in the first place.
0: Oh, it was the smart convergence model, right? That state handling you didn't have to worry about. Ah, yeah, that is that... uh, and that that concept of like up create or update doing that successfully is the mark of a true like crafts to me. You know, like if you can write even even SQL, if you can use an upsert, I'm a big fan. You know, like uh, that that's gonna be software that'll work better. I don't if if I could give people two words of advice for their career, learn how to handle that create or update bit successfully. Yes. Oh, yes. Um,
1: it's cool. it's not fun when you accidentally run your your script that you've lovingly crafted and then right. you accidentally like deleted something that you're not supposed to and then recreated it entirely when you really should have just done an update, you know, right. or if it didn't exist, you should have just created it. Right. Like the upsert is a magical thing, but oh yeah, it's not something you think about immediately when you automate.
0: No, no, no. And because you just want to get it working, you really think of it day one. But then, of course. Maintenance, you know, day three. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, 100%. So, okay, that's so cool. So you got into, uh, that's uh, that's one of the reasons I like to, Terraform is it has this like picture of the world and there's a reconciliation loop and all that. And that seems, that reconciliation reconciliation loop seems to be central to so much of what we do these days. And, and now we, like Kubernetes is built so that you can just throw away stuff and rebuild it. But there's still something keeping track. It's still, there's still something reconciling what's out there versus what's supposed to be out there. And making it real, right? So having Terraform do that in the the micro level for all these different systems you might interact with is just it's perfect. Um so okay, that's I think to me, Terraform was I don't know what I don't know what the big thing that made HashiCorp so part and parcel of, of the everyday vernacular of like uh operations, you know, but it is central to everything these days, right? Um you mentioned console and console. Uh, and vault. What mm-hmm. like what is what
1: are those two things? Oh, we'll start with console. Console is a service mesh and it does a lot more than a service mesh. There's a history behind console in general. Um, if you're in the spring ecosystem, you might have used console for key value store, uh, yeah. or you know, or as a service discovery mechanism. You know, basically what I guess the advent of uh, the, the reason why console came about and the history of it. Uh, is that networking was complicated, right? So when you had networking, you had services that could communicate with each other, services that had to communicate to databases, services that had to communicate with external services, and you didn't have a great way of resolving it. So in Spring, maybe you have an easy way to resolve between Spring specific services, but if you had external services that were older, you really couldn't figure out how to route from one service to another. So console helped solve that problem. Um, In the past few years, there's been a service mesh capability added to that. So it just makes it even easier to resolve services across multiple environments and different kinds of heterogeneous workloads and orchestrators, et cetera. So that's a short summary of console. Okay. And then Vault is a secrets manager. It stores and rotates secrets. And that's the pretty cool part. I think the storing part is, you know, okay, fine. But the rotating part is pretty cool. Uh, You can think of Vault sort of as, um, you know, the way, as almost like as if you had a password manager for yourself and it automatically rotated the passwords for you every 30 days, for example.
0: When you say rotated, does that mean just generate a new one?
1: It does generate a new one. And Vault has a couple different capabilities that allow you to either generate a new one, don't generate a new one, generate, you know, uh, keep one in place and and make sure that it doesn't, you know, you don't revoke it too quickly before issuing a new credential, et cetera. So there's a couple different configurations.
0: So you can have like an overlap where you have a new one and everything new should be using that, but the old clients can still taper off or something like that? Yep, Cool. exactly. Okay, so let's come back to, let me, so, so, okay, back to console for a second. Console, I, I was very intrigued by the fact that you called it a service mesh. And I know I'd seen um, <sighs> announcements around that capability in the last few years. Uh, but I still think of it as a service registry. And uh, that's just because I haven't really updated to the latest and greatest. That mesh capability is now front and center, it looks like. That's really cool. Um, that's cool. So, so yeah, console is... Uh, I know you can use it as a service registry. I like the idea of the service registry. Obviously in Spring Cloud, as you mentioned, we have good support for it there. And it also does key value storage as well, right? You can actually do configuration in there. Um, mm-hmm. Is there an integration between the support there and in Vault? Can I like delegate to Vault for certain things or do I just use Vault directly? What's the story there?
1: Well. It depends. It depends on what, and you can delegate to Vault for certain things. For you know, you may not want to put all your configuration information in there, right? So right. you might not want to put, uh, let's say, your application name, right, in Vault. Uh, in which case, you might you might use something. You might use Console. You might use some other configuration store of right. some kind. But for the sensitive information, database usernames, passwords, certificates are a big one. Right. Uh, you know. Any kind of username, password, or tokens to anything else—it right. tends to be better stored in Vault.
0: Cool. Is there any reason why I couldn't? Is it is it in performant, or is there any reason why I couldn't just store all my configuration in Vault? Like, what's the reason not to? Why why use console if I have Vault?
1: It's a good question. I think that with Vault, it's not that it's not performant, but Vault is handling vi- these kind these kinds of attributes dynamically, right? And you want some kind of separation of concern in some regard when it comes to right. certain configuration, right? So for example, do you want to put application pl- application name plus all of these settings that you might have plus a database username and password involved when really all you're changing is the database username and password right. and you're planning to do that every 15 days, which some people do. You know, Do you want to really keep track of also the configuration that's involved as well? Um, probably not. And on top of that, Vault, from a security standpoint, you're if you're already investing in a secrets manager to store your secrets, you're one. You want to make sure you minimize who has access to that secret, whether it be an application, a you know human who's trying to access it, or or another service. You know, it could be any anybody, but you want to minimize how many people have access to it. And in which case, it, maybe it's not secret to have application configuration, but does everybody need access to application configuration?
0: Maybe no, not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um. Yeah. But couldn't I just read the config for, if I'm going to be reading the con, if I'm going to read even one value from Vault? it doesn't my application therefore already have access to Vault?
1: It does, but you can segment which parts of Vault. So, I mean, oh, I you
0: have.
1: know, yeah, cool. it, you can segment which parts of Vault, and I think it's also difficult because. Part of the way Vault works is by API path. So uh, what you do is that it's effectively API authorization under the hood. That's how uh, the access system works. So when you grant an application access to Vault, it has access to certain API paths and certain methods. And when you separate configs by certain methods, for example, a database username and password is under what they call in Vault a different secrets engine and thus a different path. Then, if you were to just use static configuration, application configuration. So because they're in two separate API paths, you know, you could have them both, you know, the, the, the application access both, but from a debugging standpoint, you know, are you trying to test every path that this application needs to access? Does it just need access to the database username and database username and password involved? You know, so, there's a lot of nuances to how you store the information in Vault as well as how your application retrieves and accesses it.
0: I love it. So Vault is one of those things where, again, I don't know how we did it before, right? there's we've had configuration. We've had uh, equivalents to console, although not nearly so fully featured. We've had things that, when taken together in aggregate, if you squint, looks vaguely like, Console, right? We had uh, Eureka and Apache Zookeeper and uh, even Redis to an extent, you know, kind of looks like it. And then you've got DNS systems and you've got all these things. They're not integrated. They're not, they're, there's not a single cohesive thing that does all the things that console does. But again, you could get there. Whereas with Vault, what was the, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not really, I've, I've, I've operated stuff. I just don't really know what I would have reached for, you know, before Vault. What is the uh, analog?
1: There wasn't really anything. I mean, you could secure it somewhere. Um, and I, I will tell you, a lot of people encrypt the secret and store it in version control. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. Like, <laughs> for
0: you those who are listening to audio, one there one? was a
1: noticeable grimace there. Yes. Um this is actually a common pattern. is, you know, and there's again, it's a it's a choice. Mm-hmm. You have to be aware of your security posture when you do this. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, example, for example, in the Kubernetes space, uh, you know, Kubernetes secrets are in plain text, for example. Um, and it's easy to inject them as is into an application. And so usually for for a sort of um easy approach to managing Kubernetes secrets, folks will encrypt it with a tool, uh, you know, a certain Keys to encrypt it and then commit it to version control and then have some controller in Kubernetes decrypt it and make it into a Kubernetes unencrypted Kubernetes decrypted sorry Kubernetes secret so that is a common pattern as well
0: is so is okay so the app development the app developer there doesn't have to worry about the decryption though it's some thing couldn't that be vault like why do I have to build all this stuff if I could just get vault to keep it secured and then give it to me decrypted as a yeah kubernetes and country. you could
1: and you could um, most people though they don't necessarily you know most people who are in this pattern they're looking for a lightweight easy way to manage secrets right and yeah. there's an argument to be made for not having a centralized secret store right because then you have to manage that secret store or that secret manager yeah. Um and managing vault isn't for everybody and we can all acknowledge that. Some people they just have one password or one set of credentials, they're going to encrypt them and maybe they don't change that often and for the most part they're not going to give that set of credentials isn't going to give them access to everything. But um what we at least what I've seen is that as you grow your either the number of applications that you're building as well as the infrastructure you're building over time, you get more and more secrets. And it becomes a lot harder to figure out who's using what secret, where it's stored. Did you accidentally commit it on you know, decrypted somewhere and you're not supposed to, now you have to remediate it. What's the blast radius? If you do have to remediate and revoke those credentials, it's a lot harder to manage. And in that case, when you reach that point, a centralized secrets store manager is really helpful.
0: Right. Okay. So let's talk about this. So uh, for, let's say for day one, an environment variable sourced from an encrypted value in text, and Vault. This the in terms of like start up the app and get the new value. You know, get the value. That I think is let's say they're tied, right? So, but where you make a great point is day two when we need to revoke that credential. What does that look like for Vault versus this duct tape and bailing wire uh, approach that I just described, where you're just propagating values and in basics for encrypted. Values along the chain somewhere until it finally gets injected into your app as a as a config or a a secret map or a secret in Kubernetes. Versus using Vault, what's that look like? What's what happens if I need to change a a value that's in Vault and my apps are already?
1: So plan I I, so so the the you know the first scenario which is without Vault or a centralized secret manager, uh, I jokingly call plan R where you regret everything. Uh, you rotate the secret and then you revoke the old secret uh, and you refactor anywhere right. that, <laughs> that referenced it. Uh, the joke in the refactors is not actually refactoring. It's a find and replace. Right. Uh, and then you rerun everything, right? So everything that is, t- everything that's associated with that secret, you need to rerun in order for it to retrieve the new secret or to get the new secret. Right. Um, and it's a pretty tedious process. And so from personal experience, when, uh, I have done this encrypted model uh where we accidentally committed something decrypted not great we were not happy about that we did follow plan R where we regretted everything uh and then we proceeded to re- rotate revoke et etc remediate refactor everything um you know it was one secret but it was distributed across seven different repositories which meant seven different applications and seven different pipelines and then we found an eighth one because we oh. didn't realize that it existed, uh and that took about a day, right? And that's from a development standpoint. That's not that's not great. You spent a whole day trying to remediate.
0: You well, know, plus you live with that. this like lingering fear that there might be a ninth about what you just don't know yet. You know, yes, oh, yes. the anxiety. Exactly. Okay, I, I felt that. Yes. The anxiety,
1: um. yeah, the anxiety. Right. We're painting the picture a bit. Um, now, imagine if we had the vault scenario, right, where it's not again not to say this perfect, but it's a very different approach, right? And that if there is a secret that's been compromised somehow, we find out that it's been compromised because you know someone set a flag that says someone used this secret, and it's a little bit anomalous, you know, for some reason or another. Um, what happens is that you can, you know, you just have your application retrieve information from Vault dynamically. So in the case of Spring, it's great because you have uh, Spring. Cloud Vault, right? Spring Cloud Vault. Right. Um, and what the application will do is, what you do is just say, okay, Vault, the, so your security team or you will say, Vault, revoke this lease. Uh, Vault has a leasing system for secrets, right? What
0: does that mean? Revoke
1: this. Um, so what it will do is it will lease a secret for a service to use, and it will lease a unique secret for every service that requests the lease. So you can imagine it kind of like, you go into a rental car service and you rent the car and every person gets their own set of keys, right? They get their own different car. So right. at the end of that rental period, you must return the car, you know, or someone will seize the car. That's the difference. Right. In this case vault will seize the car metaphorically. So it will, it will revoke the, the secret. But if you do renew, like as a, as an application, if you say I need to renew this for a few more hours, then Vault will just allow you to use that secret, right? So it's a two-way street. Uh, a service can say, I want to renew the secret. Vault itself, however, has the authority to say, I'm going to revoke or you know, remove this lease so that you can no longer use the secret.
0: So how, okay, so you're saying there's, uh, let's say I've got, for some reason in, in bad form, but let's just say I've got two different applications talking to the same database. Now I've got vaults sitting in between my apps and the secret on how to connect to that database. Why would I get, are you saying that each user would get a different database password?
1: Yep. You can set it up that way. So
0: uh, there's, Ooh, two separate, yeah,
1: there's two separate ways that you can set up vault for date for, let's say for a username and password, right? We'll just yeah. take a username and password. So in the case of a database username and password, there's two different ways you can set it up. There's first called what is a static key value store. It's like a console key value store. You store a key and a value. Username, password. Yeah. With static key values, this is you in administrator, a vault administrator determining what that username and password is. And it doesn't change. So multiple applications can use the same static username and password okay. if they want to.
0: And those would be those would live in Vault. I, I would yes. connect to Vault, get the key from there, use it in yes. my application to connect to Postgres.
1: Exactly. And now if someone goes in and they change. This username and password. So, for example, if they change it from uh, Josh to Josh one two three for mm-hmm. some reason, your application has to have a little bit of code, or hopefully some library that will go and retrieve, detect a difference, retrieve the new username and password, and then reinitiate a database connection. Right? Okay. So there has to be some handling in the application
0: to do that. So how does that jive with the mesh or the least uh, discussion?
1: Yeah. So in that case, static secrets are not leased. That's the important okay. thing. We can't assign a lease to a secret because it's not like you necessarily, you, the administrator, database administrator, for example, changed it, right? right? So that's static. There's a second model. And the second model in Vault is where the leases become important. And this is the more powerful, I think the more powerful approach. Vault can rotate secrets for you. And so Vault has these secrets engines. One of them is called a database secrets engine. And what it will do is allow you to issue unique usernames and passwords depending on who authenticates to Vault. So for example, uh, Josh's pod authenticates to Vault to ask for a username and password. It gets Josh. Rosemary's pod authenticates to Vault to get a database password gets Rosemary's, you know, Rosemary password, for example. Right. So it gets a unique set of usernames and passwords per service identity. Okay. And that's what's important. So the has become important because when you have a dynamic credential, it times the lease, right? Sets a time for how long you can use that username and password for a given identity.
0: Mm-hmm. Still confused. How do I connect? How, do, how, do, how does Postgres know about these different passwords?
1: Yeah, so when you configure a Vault Secrets engine, you mm-hmm. can pass a database connection string and this database connection string has to have sufficient administrative permission um, to issue create certain creation wow. statements, alteration statements, or deletion statements. Um, and part of these statements allow you to create a role, alter a role, or drop a role, for example, in a database.
0: Aha, that's the bit. So the secrets engine in vault can be configured to handle and you know to administer, to provide users and passwords and roles for. My SQL data store. Okay. Yep. Exactly. Uh, and so there are there different integrations here? Like what databases are not supported? For example, if I wanted to use Tokyo cabinet from 2013, like does there a secret <laughs> engine for that or?
1: Probably not. I mean, it depends on, uh, I think it depends on the release. I think a number of the vendor, like the older databases that are heavily vendored probably won't be supported. Um, but most of the ones that, you know, in recent years, like but there's a broad spread. so There's MySQL, Microsoft SQL Server, Postgres SQL. There's a lot of there. I think there's even Oracle too. Uh, Oracle databases, of course, as well. And there are a number of them. I think in some of the more the the uh, oh my brain just melted. Uh, some of the not the one the, the other more modern databases that are not relational databases. I'm just going to bin right. them as not no, relational. Sure. Yeah, exactly yeah or some equivalent uh there are some that have the support others do not so definitely um, check yeah. mm-hmm.
0: but that's interesting that's super cool so in this case all you just set up the database you set up vault and then everything from there starts to talk to vault vault becomes your your authentication layer that's so cool yep yeah and exactly. now if there's a bug in so I, I mean how do you lock down i guess you just lock down both guys but for those three permissions You have just one user and that's just the one that the secrets engine is using
1: exactly and you can set up vault to actually rotate the administrative password for you as well so So it will yeah it will it will actually you can set it up to rotate the administrative password and then it will propagate that to the connection string for your for any secrets engine that's related to it
0: oh wow oh that's mind-bending so it's using a username and password that it's going to then rotate out from underneath itself to mm-hmm. update its own how my head okay that's that's <laughs> cool but it wow and that works and that means you're completely locked out of your database if yeah. vault should like get if they, somebody pulls the plug on on the service on which vault is running at the second and it's changing out the credentials uh, it's probably fine <laughs> it does sound better than the alternative just having to manage manages myself okay so great so there's this concept of a lease um I guess I would just connect to Vault through some abstraction. I suppose Spring, spring for Hedgecore Vault does that for me. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. and then what is my perspective from a Spring development you know, use case? Like if I'm connected, am I just asking for keys and it just knows that I'm connected as me, therefore I get the Josh specific value?
1: Yeah. So there is a, a couple of different authentication methods that you can use to connect to Vault, and that's what they're called authentication methods. In yeah. the case of spring, you can configure a couple of different authentication methods. Um, but you know, a lot of them have to be, I would say a lot of them to make it easier for everybody, mm-hmm. uh, should be native to the machine that the, let's say that the application is running on. So we'll take Kubernetes cause it's an easier example, but yeah. in the case of Kubernetes, um, what It's almost never said, by the
0: way, Uh that's almost never said we're going to take Kubernetes because it's the easiest example. It's the easiest
1: example in this case, because like if I try to explain Amazon EC2 metadata and how that's being used to authenticate, we're going down a rabbit hole. Yeah. So so with Kubernetes, it's uh, using a service account, right? So if you attach a service account to your deployment it you know that's what pod, the pod uses right um and it gets a jot right it gets the json web token through that service account uh that json web token is uh, associated with vault so you can can so someone on the vault side on the administrator side has to say i'm allowing this service account in this namespace to connect to this secret so once someone allows that on the vault side an application uh, can use that service account in order to connect to Vault and then receives in exchange a Vault token. That Vault token allows them temporary access to Vault. Um, that's the, I suppose, the, the authentication method that's built into Kubernetes, for example. But in the case of you know the, this library, you could use just a plain Vault token. You could use any other authentication method that is running on the machine that's sort of native to the machine itself. Um, the idea is that it's using, Vault wants to use the machine identity. It You know, we don't recommend people just pass the tokens back and forth. It's no. preferable to use the machine identity.
0: So how is, okay, so what if my pod gets killed and I start up on a new node and therefore a new machine, or, you know, usually a new at least a new VM, which for all intents and purposes, I imagine looks different to Vault.
1: Yeah. So in that case, in if it's Kubernetes and it's getting rescheduled, it's still using the same service account. It's still using. It's getting a new job, but it's using the new service account, right? And in which case, it will allow it will reauthenticate to Vault and then issue a new set of username and password. Uh, as long as it's using that service account, then that application can re- be rescheduled on any node that it needs to. Now, if If you were not using, let's say, Kubernetes authentication method, you were using some machine identity. So if you chose a cloud, a lot of them have like instance metadata that, uh, you know, Sodor shows some of the machine identity and and some of that information. Um, That's a little bit more complicated. You have to you can do more dynamic, let's say dynamic metadata. Uh, assigned to the authentication involved, so you can say anyone from this image name, or anyone from this network is allowed to do uh, is allowed to connect to Vault in this secret over here. Wow! Uh, yeah,
0: that is it. Okay, so it really does hurt my head to think about this stuff because I'm not great with security. So I'm I'm glad this stuff exists. Just I should <laughs> I should take some training. Okay, so th- okay, it's so- a lot
1: more yeah, that's where uh, I guess like the shortest summary I can offer is that for an application to connect to Vault, it needs an authentication method. Sure. And that authentication method should be as easy as possible. Um, and if it wants to rotate secrets, you need a secrets engine.
0: You What you explained was perfect. I understood it, which is a far side better than what I could say before, because I didn't understand that this was possible, let alone how you would do it. Uh, but I'm just saying it's still, the fact that it's in my head is one thing. It's quite another that I would not, it would sit easily with me. It doesn't sit, I'm still thinking about it. Okay, so great. So does Kubernetes have, is there some sort of integration with Kubernetes that I need to do so that it understands how to source that jot from Vault? Is there like an operator or something I need to install? What does that look like?
1: So there is a Helm chart. Um, the Helm chart, however, is just so that you could deploy the clients, let's say on, on Vault. You know, you could run Vault outside of Kubernetes at sure. the end of the day, that's fine. Um, there is, but what we recommend is deploying a Helm chart, and that Helm chart includes uh, clients. These clients have some additional metadata that will allow you to connect to an external vault server. It also has, it uses a mutating webhook to inject a sidecar container. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yes, big word. So effectively, what what happens is that when you create an application and you use a Kubernetes annotation on it that says use uh, Vault inject, it right. will create that will create a container in the pod, right? And that will allow that container handles your authentication to Vault for you. So but in terms of what
0: it, you, it, how does it originate? What what do I have to do so that it isn't just some strange client connecting to Vault that will get turned away at the door?
1: yeah, so there's a couple different methods uh, to do this. Um, you know, you have a code. so first is you register to an external external server address. Um and when you register to an external server service server address, right? There's a set of tokens as well involved with that. right. Um so that has to that has to be set up and passed through. The so other thing that, yeah, that's a vault administrator, preferably a vault administrator.
0: So the vault administrator says, Anything in this IP, this range, or what what am I registering? Like,
1: yeah. It could be range, it could be a, a token, it could be okay. you know, so some kind of authentication that allows it, right? You can an administrator will usually choose. So that's pre usually preset by some Vault administrator, and that's the important part, right? You don't wanna let everybody authenticate. So usually an administrator will restrict it. Um, the administrator will also set the namespaces that will be allowed to authenticate as well as the service accounts that are allowed ah, to authenticate. Okay. Well.
0: So, they, so they know about the service accounts and the physical nodes or ranges or whatever. and so the, And that coupled with the application and the machine, that those three things form like a constraint basically. You have to match all three, okay. Okay, carry on. I'm sorry, starting to get it. Yeah,
1: and that's basically the the biggest hurdle to set up. <laughs> it yeah. starts literally with making sure your administrator configures this. Uh, you know, in your in your vault server specifically, make sure that they configure this authentication authentication method for Kubernetes, for example, properly. Um, and that way, that allows uh, you know a service vault itself also vault on the cluster must have a service account, right? So that service account must have additional access to grant to grant additional um acts, you know, RBAC permissions right. for other service accounts. So it needs token review. I think token review or something. I don't remember token yeah. review, review permissions. Um, so you do need to have both sides configured. Um, and that's where the initial, I would say the initial administrative effort has to come in.
0: Okay. And then once you've done that, then from there on Assuming you don't move clusters to a completely different cloud infrastructure or something like that, it'll... it Passwords just kind of take care of themselves, it'll automatically re- revoke and renew mm-hmm. passwords. Now, how do I tell my... You, you mentioned that you need to have code. How do you tell your applications that the lease is expired and they should therefore update their own like database connection strings and so on?
1: So that's where the challenge is. I think that's actually the biggest challenge. Um, it's not necessarily the administrative uh, effort of setting it up. It's when you know should your applications be vault aware? And the problem is that in this model, applications do have to be somewhat vault aware. Right. There's there's not a great way for an application to know whether or not the lease is about to be revoked unless the application is checking Vault. Um, and so, in the case of let's say you know, the spring uh, Spring for Hashiper Vault library, it is handling the retry logic as well as the polling logic to assess whether or not a lease perhaps might be expiring and needs to renew. So uh, in that case, it is handling renewal as well as or or handling some revocation, right? In which it has to get a new one. That's cool. Um, know that. yeah, yeah, so it does do that. But that's the thing that I think most applications sort of uh, encounter as an obstacle. Right. Not all code has the ability to renew, handle this renewal, or handle this retry kind of capability. Uh, um, so what it's if not I not built d- into everything?
0: So what if I don't have a code, I don't have a project that has the benefit of something as um, well done as Spring for HashiCorp? Um, Vault. What is, can I, is there some way to get uh, Vault to tell my application or to notify my application? I can just restart, refresh, or reset.
1: Yeah. So that's that's where the Vault agent is very helpful. Um, I mentioned there was an injector that you can add. So through a Kubernetes annotation, or if you're running on a virtual machine, you can run a separate process called Vault Agent. And what Vault Agent will do is it will handle the renewal as well as revocation of secrets and write it to a file. So the application just reads it from the file. Um, A number of applications, yeah. A lot of application frameworks do handle file diff, right? So they will recognize that that perhaps there's some change in a file diff where you can set something in your code that says, okay, there's some difference in this file, I should do something, right? Whether it be reload database connections, reload the application, reload a connection somewhere else, who knows what. Um, so they do, so a number of application frameworks do recognize file diff, right? But in the case of Vault Agent, you know, Vault Agent Vault Agent would be able to handle the rotation of secrets, write it up to file. Now, right. if your application does not recognize a file diff, can't handle that, uh, Vault Agent has a command Literally it's called command directive, uh, where it will issue a command for you to reload your application, whether that be restarting the application entirely, fairly disruptive, although some applications don't really have a great reload capability. Uh, or you can, you know, issue in the case of let's say spring, uh, you can issue it to the actuator refresh endpoint and refresh the applications, connections, wherever.
0: Oh, so that's what that article that. You were writing the other day was about that's the last that's if if all this other stuff that does it a better job if all that has failed, then there's yes. this last mechanism where you can refresh state. Oh, that is so cool! That's a pretty lengthy blog. Now that I have a perspective of what that's the tip of the iceberg. That's like if all these other much better approaches have failed, you still have all the support for refreshing stuff in Spring Boot using the actuator endpoint that you just described. Huh? Cool. Wow! Oh, my goodness. Um that's stellar. What is what is the, I guess, I don't know, what's the, Is just, is it password rotation and integration with other things that need it? I feel like that must be 99% of the work, right, is, is storing secrets and then making it so that those secrets are the source of truth for databases and for your apps, right? Like, yeah,
1: and it gets a little more complicated too because then you know if your applications are really if you're really interested in this really dynamic model where something else is managing the rotation and revocation of secrets for you, your applications have to learn how you know learn or be refactored to handle this kind of behavior. So it's not just passwords anymore. You know there are applications that have to handle certificate expiration. Uh, vault issues certificates for it can be a PKI. You know can act as a PKI for example and issue certificates. Um, you know, you could issue various tokens. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Uh, there's even Kubernetes secrets engine, which issues, uh, dots as well. So there's a lot of different ways in which you can, you have a sensitive information, um, that your application needs to use and it could be, you know, it has to be able to accommodate for all these changes from some kind of, I guess, upstream yeah, upstream right. service.
0: Oh, that's okay. So it sounds like there's a lot of work there, even if you do the um. Like, there's two sides. There's one is making your making your app take it best take advantage of all this cool stuff. But it sounds like if you wrote your app to be a uh, twelve factor compliant and it's stateless and you can restart it at will, then there's a there's an easy way to get that working without any changes to the code. So that's it doesn't have to be hard. It is if you want to do it mm-hmm. right, but it's. But it's yeah. made less painful by the presence of things like Spring for Apache Spark Vault. But from the operations and administration perspective, um, you're putting everything in one place, and then you're deploying that thing. And that sounds like a lot of that sounds suspiciously like work. I, I'm. Yes. What Can I pay somebody to not have to do this myself? Like, is there? Yes,
1: you can. Yeah. Oh. There what is, is fortunately a uh, HCP Vault, HashiCorp Cloud Platform Vault, which is a managed uh, managed vault offering. Um, and so what that will do is uh, create a vault server vault, set of vault servers for you. Um, and you could connect in your clients, you know, vault clients, you know, in, in various ways. So if it's Kubernetes, you use the Helm chart to deploy some clients. Uh, and using a token, you can pass to uh, connect back to your server. Um, you know, you can use similar configurations for virtual machines and then many other kinds of workloads.
0: nope So that's that's all. Obviously, multi-tenant as it gets and secure and all that stuff, and it's managed by people that wrote the code, so they know what they're yes. doing. Yes, it is. <laughs> ah, that's much better. We should have started with that. This went down. Mm-hmm. This got more progressively anxiety-inducing. Just, just, and then now it felt much better. Okay, so Hasura yeah. Cloud. Something platform HC.
1: What HCP, yeah, HCP Vault, HashiCorp yeah. Cloud Platform Vault. Well,
0: there we go, HCP Mount Vault. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want this. This is this is good. Um, I I we've just begun to scratch the surface. Where do people learn more? Like if they if you had to send in one place.
1: Yeah, so if you had to go to one place, go to learn.hashicorp.com. I think that is the URL. Let me make sure that it is an actual (laughs) URL. Yes, learn.hashicorp.com. You can find all of the tutorials there, but there are Vault tutorials specifically, and they'll go from getting started all the way to the more uh, interesting features. If you really want to do like, let's say encryption as a service, right? Um, And you want to get more complicated with it, but it goes from getting started, from an operation standpoint, all the way to like an application developer perspective as well.
0: Wow. Okay, cool. So that's right. So are you on the internet? And if so, uh, do you want to be found? And if so, where can people find you?
1: Yeah, you can always find, I guess. So to answer in that order, I think, uh, yes, I'm on the internet. Uh, Yes, you can find me. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn at Rosemary Wong, W-A-N-G, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at joatmon M O N zero eight. 8 So it's an acronym for Jack of all trades, master of none, zero 08. Uh, yeah, so if you if you ever put any questions or you're confused or you're just like, oh, this is an interesting thing about Hodgepodge Tools, I always want to hear it. You can always shoot me a message and uh, I'll uh, I'd love to hear what your commentary might be.
0: I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to help elucidate some of this stuff. I, I, I had the fo- f- foggiest idea that some of this is possible, but I confess I, I, I didn't, I couldn't keep it in my head. You know, this has been a, a very useful session. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, and hanging out with me today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: I sampled music from Steve Combs' Them from Morning in Springtime and Steve Combs's Small Victory, both of which are licensed under a Creative Commons license. I'm trying to hire production assistants to make the production of this podcast easier. I want to make sure that we can add things like show notes and transcripts and, and just generally do more. If you would like to advertise in the show then please reach out to me uh, and if you can't uh, or don't want to advertise but would like to otherwise support the show then please consider supporting me at patreon.com patreon.com forward/josh long for as low as four dollars a month. Thanks again. no harm came to any seasons in the making of this podcast.